Amen. I want to invite you to look with me to 1 Timothy, and today we're beginning chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. As you're turning there, what you're going to find is a list of qualifications for the elders of the church. And that begs a question, before we jump in, why do you need to read this? If you're not an elder in the church, and if you don't aspire to be an elder, then why does this matter? For example, I saw Cam in the hallway. Cam's a police officer. I don't feel any compulsion to read through his position description, uh, to sit in on the meetings where they walk him through his expectations as a police officer. That doesn't feel like that applies to me. So is that, is that the same thing that's happening here? Could I dismiss everyone and say, hey, Gary and Harry and Keith and Clyde, I want you to stick around. God's got a word for you, but the rest of us can leave. Is that what we ought to do? Obviously not, or else I would have dismissed you already. So why then are we reading this? Why does this matter for us? To answer that, I want to look very quickly to 2 John. I want to read this, verses 10 and 11. He writes to this church and he, told, he tells them, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is good, orthodox, right teaching, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So he's writing to a church and he says, when you entertain teachers in your church that aren't teaching the truth, you're, you're guilty, you're accountable for what they're teaching. When you invite leaders into your midst and you welcome their leadership, you are responsible for that bad leadership. That's important for us to hear. Because I think sometimes we allow ourselves to sit under bad teaching, you know, through YouTube, for example, through, through the wide web. We expose ourselves to all kinds of teaching and all kinds of leadership. And we're reminded here that we are held accountable for what we listen to. But let's think now about the context of this church in Ephesus. And when we think about this church and we think about how it went off the rails because of the the bad teachers that came in and the elders that were in their midst that had gone off the rails, when we think about the Ephesian church, we feel some sympathy, don't we? We feel bad for these folks. Their congregation was in disarray and you think, well, they were victims. And maybe you've been a part of churches that have have blown up and and you think that's a tragedy, right? Some of you have suffered through that and you're, you're victims of that and that's true. But what we also need to see is that while, while these people are victims, they're also culpable. They're culpable for the bad teaching that they welcomed into their church. They're culpable for the leaders that went off the rails while they should have been watching and walking with them. We're responsible for the leadership that we sit under. So that being said, does this matter? Do we all need to sit under this? Yes, we do. We need to learn this lesson from the crisis in Ephesus so as not to repeat it here in Aurelia. An unhealthy eldership will ruin this church, I promise. And we will all be held accountable if that were to occur. Therefore, this is important. As we read, I want you to ask these questions in your mind, okay? As we're looking through this text, here are some questions. What kinds of leaders does God bless? When we elect a new elder or we bring in a new pastor, what attributes are non-negotiable? And what are the qualities that we should be praying for in our current spiritual leaders? Well, the answers to these questions are are right before us in our passage this morning. So let's lean in and listen as if the future health of our congregation depends upon it. Because it does. We're going to read from verses 1 to 7, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. 
the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here he lists the qualifications for overseers. And this maybe would be a helpful moment to clarify something in your Bible. When you see the term overseer, or elder, or pastor, or shepherd, all of those terms are synonymous. They're referring to one office. And so, putting that together... I hope you know that we've got our four elected elders in this church. We've got Harry, and we've got Gary, and we've got Keith, and we've got Clyde. Uh, and then I'm, you call me pastor, but pastor and elder is the same thing. I'm, I'm an elder with them, and they are pastors with me. And those terms are referring to one office, the people who are teaching and exercising authority in the church. So that being said, in the text, he refers to them as overseers. In our context, we, we use the term elder. That's the language we use. And so throughout the rest of the sermon, I'm going to use the language of elder, but I'm referring to the same office. And if you're wondering, are these the same offices? You could look in your Bible at Acts chapter 20, look at verse 17, look at verse 28. He's talking about the same men. In one verse, he calls them elders. In another verse, he calls them overseers. Because again, the terms are referring to the same people exercising the same role. That being said, what are the qualifications for an elder? First, This qualification is found at the beginning and the end of the list. He should be above reproach. This qualification sandwiches the whole thing. So look at verse 2. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then if you look at the end of the passage in verse 7, he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In fact, you could argue that this one qualification summarizes the entire list. What does it mean to be an elder? Like, what are the qualifications? He, he should be, you should look at his life, you should look at every observable area that you could look at, and when you consider his life, you should be able to say, this man walks the walk. That's, that's the summary of the list in a nutshell. And P.S., I want you to notice that, because the qualifications for an elder don't include any superhuman expectations, it doesn't, it doesn't list out any extraordinary giftings that we need to be looking for. What we find here is, is a call for extraordinary character. So let's hear that because many churches have gone off the rails because they missed this part. No mention of extraordinary giftings. There's only one gift that is a, a, a unique gift that requires a skill set. You must be able to teach. We'll talk about that later. But that's the only thing there that refers to like skills and abilities. The rest of it, Ordinary, faithful integrity. Character. That's what this list calls for. 
That's important for us. Does this brother walk the walk? That is the question that we are to ask when we consider elders in this congregation. And I want you to see in verse 7 that, that our consideration of that is going to impact our witness in this city. Did you notice in verse 7 he says, so that he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. When the elders of the church are not well thought of by outsiders, when they live one way in the church gathering but they live another way in the city, doesn't it affect the impact of the witness of the church? Maybe some of you have lived through that. Boy, it's tough when you're trying to witness to your coworker and he says, well, you li- you're at that church? You watch as, as Brother Bob passes around the offering plate when Brother Bob is swindling people in his full-time job? When he says, you go to that church? Didn't I just see your pastor on YouTube shaking his fist at a police officer yelling about his freedoms? That's where you go to learn about Jesus? When the elders miss this, the witness of the whole congregation suffers. They must be above reproach. They must be well thought of by outsiders. That's the first qualification, and that's what packages this whole thing together. The second, he goes on to say, he should be a one-woman man. That's the literal translation of the qualification in verse 2, where he says he is the husband of one wife. Now, there's been some discussion over the years about what this qualification might mean. So there were some who thought that this meant that you couldn't be single and serve as an elder. You must have a wife. But that can't be what Paul is saying because when he writes to the church in Corinth, he talks about the value of single Christians. He talks about how some Christians are are called to this life and how there are many benefits that come if you have the gift of singleness. So, So he's not disqualifying those brothers. That's not it. And some say, well, this is just disqualifying all the polygamists. So if you've got six wives, you can't be an elder, which, P.S., is true. But that wasn't a live issue in Ephesus. As we look back through history, it's not as if they had a bunch of polygamy in the church, so that's not what he's addressing. So what is it then? Well, one one commentator notes, most commentators agree that it means monogamy, only one wife at one time, that the overseer must be completely faithful to his wife. So what does it mean to refer to him as a one-woman man? It means that he is faithful, that he exercises fidelity, that we should never put a person into a role of spiritual leadership without first taking an honest and thorough look at his marriage. That if someone is to care for the bride of Christ, that is the church, we should look for the way that he cares for his bride and see if he is a faithful man. So in our context, what does that look like? Well, in our context, that means before we elect anybody into the office of elder, we have a thorough interview process. And part of that process is we send a questionnaire to their wives, and we ask them to fill that out. And it's a... It's terrifying. It's a pretty thorough questionnaire. Now, could somebody lie on the questionnaire? Yes, of course. You know, we can't look into a heart, but we've, we've put these things in place because we want to know. Before somebody come, becomes an elder at this church, we're going to look them in the eyes, we're going to look their wife in the eyes, and we're going to ask, does your husband have a pornography problem? Is your husband a faithful man? Does he have eyes for other women, or is he exercising fidelity in this marriage? We won't skip that step ever in this congregation. Because the the shepherds, the elders, are going to be caring for the men and the women in this church. And everyone should feel comfortable and safe coming to that elder. And P.S., over the last five years, haven't we seen what happens when churches skip this step? I mean, the stories of just absolute devastation and corruption and scandal that have been coming out of churches is, is heartbreaking. 
And we could have missed all of that. We could have avoided all of that if, if we as churches took this deadly seriously. We need faithful one-women men. We need to move quicker now. So we're going to consider the next three qualifications altogether under one heading. That is, he should be self-controlled. So look again at verse 2. It says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then we'll put these three together. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. To be sober-minded is to demonstrate the ability to think clearly, to make sound decisions. An elder should demonstrate a track record of wisdom. And it should be observable that they don't make rash decisions under impairment. Now, in this list, certainly the impairment of alcohol was front and center in Paul's mind. We're going to see that alcoholism was an issue in the early church. So that's, that's important. We don't want to get an elder who makes a lot of decisions when he's under the impairment of alcohol. True. Or drugs. True. But I would say, how does this play out in our context? We need to make sure we don't elect men who make decisions under the impairment of anger and passion. That's part of what sober-minded is going to look like in our context. We need to find men who have demonstrated that they don't make rash decisions in the heat of the moment. That they're sober-minded. Now the elder is also to be self-controlled. Which means his life should give evidence of discipline. The elder should be exemplary in his prayer life. And in his Bible reading. And in his daily habits and disciplines. P.S. I would imagine that every elder right now is feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Because obviously... We're not perfect in our daily prayer life, in our daily Bible reading, in our routines. Jesus is the only perfect shepherd. But as we are appointing under-shepherds in Jesus' church, we need to find men who have that self-discipline, who can then come alongside others and encourage them and say, this is what it looks like. This is, follow me as I follow Christ. So if we appoint elders in this congregation who are, who are not following Christ, who are not setting an example worth following, well, we'll, we'll rise to the leadership that we have, for better or worse. One, one man said, how shall I be able to rule others if I have not full power and command of myself? We need self-controlled elders at the helm. And then the third part in this qualification, the elders should be described as respectable. So the word that Paul uses here is referring to the outward deportment or appearance of the elder. Which, and maybe you think that seems shallow, but it, that's hugely important for those who are going to be representing the leadership of Christ's church. See, God's Word speaks to our work. God's Word speaks to our eating. It speaks to our exercise. It speaks to our family life. It speaks to our dress, even. Therefore, the elders should present themselves in such a way that they compel the Gospel to the watching community. Say, we'll put some feet on that. What does that look like? That means if, if Brother Clyde is making a habit of going to the Walmart on the weekend in his jammies, and wander around the aisles. That's not helpful for our witness. <laughs> Sorry, Clyde. <laughs> if, uh, I just picked Clyde because I can't even imagine Clyde and Jamie's. But if, if Brother Gary is showing up to work late for four days of the week, that is not good for our witness as a congregation. If I decide I want to preach with a backwards ball cap on every week, even though there's nothing theoretically wrong with that, but I'm offending everybody over the age of 40 week after week. That's a problem. The elders are to be respectable. The way that they conduct themselves and present themselves to the world matters because it says something about the gospel. It says something about our God. So that's something that we have to look for when we're appointing elders. It's an overflow of their self-control. 
Now, next, moving on. The elders should be hospitable. Hospitable. So in the Greco-Roman world, a person couldn't take for granted that when they visited a city, they would find a place to stay. Recently, Christmas time, right, Mary and Joseph learned this the hard way. You couldn't just take for granted that you'd find a place to stay when you came to a city. And so in, in that ancient world, people were often bringing visitors into their house and letting them stay for the night and showing hospitality. This was a non-negotiable for the church. If you had a new face worshiping with you in the worship gathering, it's very possible that they won't have a place to stay that night or they won't have a place to sit down and eat. And so the elders should lead the way in opening up their homes and sharing their food with those in the congregation. That's what it looked like in the first century. But can I tell you, we need to reclaim this in the 21st century. We need to reclaim the importance of hospitality. How many times has somebody visited with us in our congregation and they come in for the first time and they walk in and they sit in their seat and you know, they were greeted by Ron, thankfully, at the door and Alexandria gave them a sweet wave as they came in and they sat down, but then service ended and they walked on out to their car and they never had a chance to interact with the people of God. We need to be hospitable. We need to, we need to go over and above our culture, which is a, a private culture, a keep-to-yourself culture. We need to shake that and we need to show hospitality. Something as easy as inviting somebody over for pizza after the service. Pizza is cheap, inexpensive. You can get it quickly. If you see somebody new, just invite them over. And we need to appoint elders who can set an example for us in this, in opening our homes, in opening up our lives. One commentator notes, he who must teach others and take care of and exercise oversight over them must be open and loving to them. I've heard it said, and I think this is a good metaphor, good shepherds should smell like their sheep. Right? If, if you're going to lead people, if you're going to teach people, you need to be in and a part of their lives and they need to be in and a part of yours. You can't see real change with cold, distant leadership. Not in Christ's church. That's not how he's designed it. And that kind of hospitality is often built around the dinner table. Therefore, an elder should be hospitable. Next, he should be able to teach. Now, this is the only qualification in the list with any degree of technical skill. Everything else speaks solely of a man's integrity and his character. But even the most noble man, if he doesn't have the ability to teach, is not qualified for this office. That doesn't mean he's, he's still a good man. He's got different responsibilities in the kingdom of God. But for this office, a man must be able to teach. Because the elders are those who teach and exercise authority over the congregation. We saw that last week. Therefore, if that's the job, an elder must be able to teach. P.S. How many hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in North America are unhealthy right now because they appointed elders who knew their way around a spreadsheet but were lost in the Word of God? But we do that. Because we're pragmatic and we think, well, there's a budget that needs to be balanced. Therefore, as we look for an elder, let's find the flashy guy who's able to fill out the, the spreadsheet and, and work his way through a budget. And we, we neglect the need for someone who can open the Word of God and lead God's people according to what he sees. He should be able to teach. Now, hear that, but now hear this. The avenue and the extent of that teaching, so the where and the how many of that teaching is going to be different from elder to elder. 
We know this because in chapter 5 of this same letter, Paul commands, you can flip ahead if you want, chapter 5, verse 17, Paul commands, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So how can he say it? If he's saying especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, the insinuation is that not all of them are regularly laboring in preaching and teaching. So they're all required to be able, but in practice, there seems to have been a limited group within the eldership that carried the bulk of the responsibility of the teaching. In our context, I am the elder who carries the bulk of the teaching. And you set me apart for this, and you, you pay me to be able to feed my family for this. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but then at the same time, we have our, our brother Gary, who will often come up and he'll, he'll preach in the large gathering from time to time. God's gifted him in this way. And yet I also know that Harry and Gary and Keith have led in small groups as they've taught in a house, in a smaller context. And as elders, we teach in one-on-one settings as we counsel brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we walk through problems and we open God's Word and show them how God's Word speaks to the circumstances in their life. So some of us teach in different avenues and with a different extent, and yet every elder must be able to teach. He must be. He must know his way around the Word of God. In large groups or small an elder must be able to teach. Moving on now, we're gonna, again, we're going to consider the next three as one unit. The elder should possess a right temperament. So look with me at verse 3. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. So an elder cannot be prone to drunkenness. And again, This qualification, this mention about drinking and drunkenness is in the qualifications here. It's mentioned in the qualifications for deacons that we're going to look at next week. Uh, When he writes to Titus, who's in Crete, he mentions it there as well. This drunkenness was a live issue in the first century church. And I'm not naive to the fact that there's, there's issues of drunkenness in the North American church now as well. I know that. But I don't know that it is, it is the same issue that it was then. But I would say this. Some people escape to their vices when the pressure is turned up. All right, and isn't that often what drunkenness is? It's when the pressure is turned up, they escape to this. Some of us turn to different vices when the pressure is turned up. And as I read this qualification, while I'm watching for drunkenness, I'm also watching for the temperament of a man. What does he turn to when the heat is turned up? Because if you are an elder and you're in a position of leadership, the heat is often turned up. The pressure is often turned up. Don't Appoint a man who turns to his vice when he feels the pressure. That's what I'm hearing here. That's a disqualifying behavioral effect, defect. And the elder is not to be violent. The Greek word literally means not a striker. Because spiritual victories are not won with the sword. Heart change cannot be brought about with brute force. Therefore, a man who has displayed a pattern of hurting others in his anger when he doesn't get his way, is disqualified from shepherding the blood-bought church of Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. That's the description of our Savior. Instead, the elder is to be gentle. And this is a a beautiful, rich word. Uh, It could be interpreted as gracious. The best definition I've found of this word is sweet reasonableness. I think that captures the heart of it. The elder is to be characterized by a sweet reasonableness. He's not a striker. He's not quarrelsome. He's sweetly reasonable. Generally, as an elder, you should expect more than your fair share of friendly fire. Uh, Dr. Craig would always say, hurt people hurt people. 
That's absolutely true. And, and as an elder, it's often your task to jump into a situation with a bunch of hurt people and to point them to Christ. And, and yet, as you jump into a situation with a lot of hurt people, what do they do? They hurt you. You receive some friendly fire as an elder. Christian leadership is servant leadership. So I'm not saying woe to the elders. I'm saying that's, that's good. That's part of the call. Because we're called to be servant leaders. We're called to resemble Christ, who, 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So it's often the responsibility of an elder to jump into the middle of a fight between two Christians. Maybe it's two Christians battling in the church. Maybe it's a difficult marriage. It's part of the job of the elder to jump right in. And oftentimes you get a punch on the chin from both people in the discussion. If you've displayed a tendency to punch back harder, if that's who you are, if you always need to get in the final word, if you always need to be justified and vindicated, then you're unfit. Elders must be peacemakers. It's not quarrelsome, Paul says. Is a man fit to serve an elder? Here's, here's a practical test. What is he like when he doesn't get his own way? That's an easy test, isn't it? Is he characterized by a sweet reasonableness? Or does he fight and quarrel and stomp his feet to the bitter end? And on a serious note, I want to make sure you see how important this is. If you had appointed quarrelsome elders here at Redeemer, I don't think we would be here today. After what we've endured over the last two years, I don't think we would be here today. And I can say that with confidence because I have watched as churches who have been around for longer than we have, churches that had a longer track record of faithfulness, churches that had more reserves in the bank, more people on staff, I've watched as they have imploded over the last two years. Why? Because they had allowed quarrelsome men onto the eldership. And so they fought and they fought and they fought about political opinions and about protocols and about masks and about a bunch of other stuff that they don't need to be fighting about and their churches imploded as a result. And but for the grace of God, so would we have gone. I am so thankful that you appointed men who are characterized by a sweet reasonableness. And it's been a pleasure for me to sit with them and to disagree with them on numerous occasions and to have spirited discussions, but always with a sweet reasonableness. And by God's grace, he's led. And I say that to the grace of God and as a credit to these men and as a credit to you for appointing those men. Thank you. I would sooner have an uncaged lion in my office than a quarrelsome elder at the elder table. And I believe that with all my heart after the pressure cooker we've been through. Next. He should not be a lover of money. We see this at the end of verse 3. Ministry should never be pursued for the sake of monetary gain. That's not what it's about. Peter warned against the same mindset when he wrote to the church. He wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Let's pause there real quick. You should never be an elder because everybody forced you to it. Like, oh, we need a guy, we need a guy. It's you, let's push you. Nope, not under compulsion. Don't serve under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, right? Not because people pushed you there, but because God put you there. And then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. If, if money is your motivation for ministry, then get out. 
Now, this is particularly awkward for me because in our church polity, even though we have five elders, I'm the only paid elder. Uh, You've set me apart for the preaching and teaching, and, and you've given me time to do that, to study throughout the week. I see that. So this warning in particular is for me and for people like me that you would set apart for vocational ministry. And so let's hear this. Any elder, any pastor who treats the church like a nine-to-five job that he clocks in for and clocks out for, that he plugs away at in order to pay the bills, is not fit for the office. That's not what it's about. Now, this qualification also protects against the pitfall of dishonesty and embezzlement, which, again, has, has shown its ugly head in the church over the years. So the elders have always been responsible for the finances. This is true today. This was true in the first century. If you remember in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he talked about the Jerusalem offering. There was, the church in Jerusalem was facing persecution. And Paul saw this as a great opportunity because there was a lot of division between the, the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians. And so he thought, well, this is great because now these Gentile Christians can support the Jewish Christians. So he took up what was called the Jerusalem offering. And he went to these Gentile churches, and they took up an offering. So what did they do? They put their money in the plate, and they gave the offering to the elders of their churches. And then Paul and his team would come, and they'd collect the offering from the elders, and then they'd deliver them to the elders in Jerusalem. And so the elders were exercising oversight over the finances. Therefore, you don't want to appoint elders who have a habit of of taking some money off the top and sliding it in their back pocket. You don't want lovers of money to be the ones who are overseeing the finances. That makes sense, right? Well, thankfully, one of, common, one of God's common graces to us here in Canada is that we've got all kinds of things that are imposed on us by the government in Canada. Some of those can be frustrating, but some of them are very helpful. So did you know every year we have to undergo an audit? Every year we need to get an outsider who comes in who doesn't know the elders. They don't know us. They probably don't like us. I don't know. Um, But they have no incentive to try and hide things. And they come in and they look at the whole process from what happens when money is collected on a Sunday morning. Then where does it go? And then who sees it? And who handles it? And what's the process? And they look at all of our receipts. And they look at our budget. And they say, did it go where you said it was going to go? Is there anything that's missing? Anything suspicious? Every year we go through that process. And uh, if I understand in talking to Kathleen, it's not a fun process. She does not like that process. But it's a good process. And so one of God's common graces is we've got this safety net here in Canada to guard us if we happen to appoint a man who's a lover of money. But we need to take this seriously. It it really matters. It can really affect our witness in the city if if ever there's a scandal of somebody doing something duplicitous with the money. He shouldn't be a lover of money. Next, he should manage his household well. Look again at verses 4 to 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Pause there. Notice again, these qualifications have everything to do with just ordinary, faithful living. Meaning, if we're interviewing a potential elder, or maybe you're you're hiring a new pastor to replace me, you send me out, or maybe you're hiring a new pastor with me. When those kinds of elder interviews are happening, it sounds to me like they shouldn't be happening at a board table. They should be happening at his dinner table. We need to get into the homes of these men. We need to see them live. How does he speak to his wife? And how does he speak to his kids? And how do they respond to him? Are they cowering because they've seen dad lose his temper too many times? Or do they, do they dismiss dad altogether because they know that he never follows through? 
Or are they rolling their eyes because, oh, now dad's doing his, his church thing and you know, he's behaving differently now than he normally does? We, we watch for these things. One commentator summarizes, an indication of a person's managerial ability is the general posture of his children. Because you see, serving as a spiritual leader is not primarily about balancing the budget and preparing an annual report. Those things are part of it. They're a sliver of it. But by and large, what are our elders doing? They're loving and praying for and teaching and equipping the people of God. Right? Ephesians 4 says these leaders have been given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so we want to look at the way that a brother deals with his kids. We want to ask questions like, does he have the hard talks when they're needed? Right? Does, does he exercise discipline when it's needed? Does he encourage or is he always crushing them down? Does he, does he lift up his kids? Right? Is he actively looking for the weaknesses and the strengths so that he can... He can work with them accordingly. Is he, is he pushing them to their best potential? Because those are the people that he loves most in the world with his wife. And so how does he lead those people? Because that will give us a good indication of how he's going to lead his brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Now, having said all that, I want to put forward an important qualifier. Eventually, a child moves out of the home. And they're responsible for their own decisions. To be clear, an adult child that's walked away from the faith does not disqualify a man from the office of elder. We've seen many godly men, a wonderful husband and wife who led their children well, who, humanly speaking, did everything that they should have, and yet watched in tears as their children walked away from the faith. Are they disqualified? No, this is talking about the children who are living in the home. It's talking about the way that this elder exercises leadership in the home. Now, that being said, we're going to ask any potential elder, you know, we're going to ask them. If they've got adult children, we'll say, well, walk us through your parenting. What did that look like when they were in the home? And what did you learn? We're going to ask those questions because a man who, he should not be appointed to eldership until his home life has been carefully observed. Finally, last qualification we're going to consider. He should not be a recent convert. We see this in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The warning here implies that the role of eldership can go to a man's head. And so if you've got a new believer and then he's quickly promoted to the office of elder, he will face a very real temptation toward pride. Not he might, that will be a temptation temptation that he will face. My dad always said, Be careful that your position never exceeds your character. That's what Paul's saying here. It's a warning against this. Now that being said, I want want to point something out. When you look ahead to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, and his instructions for that church in Crete, he, he lays out a similar list of qualifications for the elders, but he doesn't include this qualification in his recommendation to Crete. Now why is that? Because Crete was a, a, a young church. This was, it was a newly planted church, so they didn't have the benefit of being able to wade through and say, well, here are three qualified guys. Let's take the one who's been walking most faithfully for the longest time. They didn't have that benefit. It was like, let's find the qualified... Oh, you've been a Christian for three months? Well, that's three more months than him. You're in. Um, so every once in a while, in your context, you might have to appoint somebody who, who hasn't had the same long tra- track record that you long for. But the principle here seems to be If you're choosing between two qualified men, 
and they're equally qualified, you should appoint the man who's been walking with the Lord for longer. He's got a better guard against that pride that creeps up in the heart. But if you've only got one qualified man, you go with the ones that God has given you. Now, that concludes this list. And with the little time that we have left, I just want to suggest three prayer requests as we move forward. Now, what do we do with this list? I think we take this list and we let it launch us into prayer. And I see three requests in particular that we need to be praying for as a people. First, pray for the elders that God will send. So in Ephesians 4, I've referenced this a few times. In Ephesians 4, we learn that good leaders are actually a gift from God. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says, And he, that is God, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So here that the shepherds and teachers, we're seeing there the, the elders, the overseers. They're a gift from God, along with the other leaders that God has sent to the church. So if good leaders are part of the blueprint, and that's what 1 Timothy tells us, that good leaders are a part of the blueprint that God has given us to have a healthy church. And if good leaders are a gift from God, that's what we just saw in Ephesians 4, then we earnestly need to ask God for this good gift. We need to ask Him for it. And, and so I want to ask you, just a real practical question, when was the last time that you asked God for this gift? If this, is, if this is your church, like if you're a member here, I want to ask you, when is the last time that you knelt down and said, God, would you give us good, qualified elders to lead? If this is your church, I would ask you to write this down on your weekly prayer list. I mean it. And pray without ceasing. George Whitfield once said, as God can send a nation or people no greater blessing than to give them faithful, sincere, and upright ministers so the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, carnal, lukewarm, and unskillful guides. Leadership matters. Therefore, if, if we would be a healthy church, if, if we would do our best, humanly speaking, to secure a bright future for the little ones that have been entrusted to our care, then we must prayerfully search out set apart in state and submit ourselves to godly leaders. The Puritan Martin Busa wrote, the greatest fear of God and the most earnest diligence are to be employed in the choice and installation of such men. We need the gift of good leaders. So we should pray for that gift earnestly without ceasing. This list teaches us what we're to pray for. So you say, well, what should I pray for? You open up 1 Timothy 3 and you just work through. Pray that that God would raise up this man. That God would work this out. And by the way, I, I would encourage you to go through this list. You know, if you would say, maybe God, is, maybe God would call me to this office. You should open up this list and you should work through and say, God, where am I strong and where am I weak? And let this, let this guide your prayer. That he would change you. That he would, that he would shape for us elders who fit the qualifications here. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. So let that not be the case here. Let's ask for the gift of good leaders. Second, let's pray for the elders that God has sent. So as we pray for future elders, can we make sure that we don't forget to pray for our current elders? Remember, why was the church in Ephesus going off the rails? Do you remember? In Acts 20, 
the Apostle Paul called together the Ephesian elders. This is before it went off the rails. He called them together and he warned them. Listen close. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul's looking forward and he's saying, this church is going to have problems. It's going to have problems because from the outside, you are going to have dangerous teachers coming into the midst, leading people astray. And, he says, not only are there going to be threats coming in from the outside, from among yourselves. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. From among you, the elders in Ephesus are going to rise up men who are going to lead people astray. You see that? Therefore, we should pray earnestly that God would protect and preserve the elders that we have today. Because when an elder swerves into theological error, when his spiritual life goes off the rails, the whole church suffers. Some of you have experienced this in your past. You felt this. It's, it's true. And that's why the enemy takes a particular interest in trying to bring down the elders. Trying to ensnare, not bring down power-wise, but bring down their spiritual life. And you say, where do you see that? Well, we just read it, actually. Look back at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. Well, why would he fall into disgrace? Into a snare of the devil. Into a snare. That's a trap. Can you picture like a bear trap out in the woods? Right, that's a snare. Catches bears. What we're learning here is that the devil is real and that the devil is actively setting these snares, these traps, in the paths of the elders of the church. He knows where Harry is weak. And he knows where Gary is weak. He knows where Keith is weak. He knows where Clyde is weak. He knows where I am weak. And he's, he's laying these traps before us because he knows if we fall into sin, if we fall into that, that area where we're weak, that, that pattern of sin, we, we lose our temper and we, we blow up at work, or, or we go back to that addiction that we thought we had conquered years and years and years ago, but here we are, we're back at it or we lash out against a congregant, or our spiritual immaturity bubbles over, or we say something from the pulpit that's destructive. He knows that those, those pitfalls, those snares, will devastate the whole body of Christ. And he's, he's actively laying snares for us. God's Word says that. Therefore, whenever we set somebody apart for leadership in this church, let's resolve to be just as active in our prayer support for these men as the enemy is in his spiritual assault. So, here's a practical application. If you're a member of this church, then you've been put on one of the elder care lists. So one of these five men I've listed is, is the elder who's caring for you. And they're praying for you faithfully. And I know this because I pray with them on Monday night. I hear them. They're praying for you. They care about you. They're checking in with you. I'm sure not as often as they'd like. They want to check in more. But they are, they are actively pursuing your best spiritual life and asking the Lord for that. So here's, here's a challenge. I'd say let's have the people on those lists, pray for the elder who's praying for you. And particularly pray for this, that God would protect them, that God would protect their marriages, that God would protect them as they parent their kids, that God would protect them from all the temptations that are unique to them, the particular things that they face. Let's, let's be those people. Let's be on our guard for the threats that we see in God's Word. It's right there for us. If we neglect it, it's to our shame. Finally, So we've said we're going to pray for those God will send. We're going to pray for those that God already has sent. But then we can't close today without 
touching on this last one, pray for a right attitude toward leadership. Because can we be honest? It feels weird to spend as much time as we have talking about leadership. Does anybody? It just feels kind of odd. Leaders aren't everything. Can I be clear? We must be careful not to put the office of elder up on a pedestal. Let's not do that. But we should also be careful not to undervalue something that God has called us to pay attention to. If you're reading the pastoral epistles carefully, then you'll come away with the conviction that leadership matters. Look at the word count that he's devoted to this here in this letter. And then open up the letter that that he sends to Titus in Crete. Look at the word count he devotes to it there. Leadership matters. It really, really does. This church is in crisis because the leadership went off the rails. It, It really matters. And Paul begins this list that we've been studying by stating, this saying is trustworthy. So he's saying, memorize this. You want to put away some axioms for life? Here's one. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Eldership in the church of God is a noble task. It's noble because it's hard. It's noble because it's costly. It's noble because it's the stewardship of God's most valuable possession. And you ask, well, what do our elders do? Right? Do they sit around and look at budget sheets? Again, no, that's a sliver of what we do. What do, you, what do your elders do? They wade into the crises as they arise. If there's, a, there's a tragedy, there's a death, there's some unfortunate circumstance, the elders are going to be there as quick as possible, praying with people, counseling people, walking with people. Is there a marriage in crisis? The elders are going to be there as fast as they can, walking through, trying to navigate, pointing to, the, to God's truth. There's somebody's faith is in doubt and they've got all kinds of questions. The elders are opening God's word and saying, let's, let's see what God says here. Someone's plummeted back into addiction. The elders are with them. That is... That's their job. Not perfectly, because none of our elders is Jesus. But that's the assignment. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To care for the flock of God. The most valuable possession. In Acts 20.28, this is one of those verses that keeps me awake at night as I just wrestle through this assignment. Paul, remember, he's called together the elders in Ephesus. Here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So so you didn't just force yourself to this role. The Holy Spirit has put you in this role. Pay attention to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. So I said I wasn't going to dismiss all of you, but for this moment I'm going to speak to the elders, which includes myself. Be careful, elders. Guard your tongue at the board table. Pray earnestly before preaching that sermon. Check your heart and your motives before giving that correction. Because Jesus bought this church with His blood. He describes this church as His bride. The stakes literally could not be higher. Therefore, pulling out, anyone willing to come under that weight anyone who counts that cost and aspires still to this office, Paul says, God's Word says, desires a noble task. God's Word says that. So as a church, let's pray that God would give us a right attitude toward leadership. The author of the Hebrews wrote, obey your leaders. He's talking about these spiritual leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. 
for that would be of no advantage to you. I am both encouraged by that and deeply discouraged by that. And by that, I mean that even here in the first century, this was a challenge. Even in the first century, there was, it was not a natural disposition to love leadership and submit willingly. Even in the first century, we've been bucking against leadership. We struggle with leadership because, quite frankly, we struggle with leadership anywhere, in any capacity. We struggle with leadership from mom and dad when they tell us to take one cookie, but we want two. We grow up. We struggle with leadership. When God's Word says to obey the emperor and to submit to the authorities who are over you, but then they tell us to do stuff that we don't like, and we feel like the authorities over us aren't as smart as we are. We don't want to submit to them. We struggle to submit to the elders. They, just, they picked a song we don't like, or they, they made a decision we don't like. We struggle to submit to the leaders who are over us. According to Hebrews, this is not a, a new issue. This has been a struggle for us as people. Do we really believe that leadership is from God? This is really what it comes down to. Do we? Do we really believe that he meant what he said when he called us to submit to our parents, which he did, to our government, which he did, to our elders, which he did? Do we believe that? Maybe I'm misreading the last two years, but it seems to me that this sin has been exposed in a shocking way in the North American church. If you would have asked me, what is the most prevalent, what is the most dangerous church, or what is the most dangerous sin in the North American church two years ago, I would have said without a second, pornography. It's this, this lust. It is rampant. It is everywhere. But you know what's different about this sin? Pornography is one that we all point at and say, that's wrong. What's particularly dangerous about this sin of rebellion is that a whole bunch of us are pointing at it and we're not so sure that it's wrong anymore. We do what seems right in our own eyes. Does that sound familiar? That's the start of the book of Judges. Read the book of Judges for your homework. It is a dangerous thing when we reject all leadership and we do what is right in our own eyes. We've seen this play out. And for that reason, I would say this sin in particular is a live issue, it is a dangerous issue, and if it is in us, and I'm talking to all of us, if there's a part of us that that is distrusting God's call to submit to those who are in authority over us, that is feeling like we can wiggle out, because I'm I'm smarter than him, and I I don't trust the wisdom of him, If, if that's a part of us, we need to surrender that to the Lord, we need to repent. This should frighten us. Listen, according to God's word, you need to be led. I need to be led, to be clear. We need this. We need to be led by those whom God has put in authority over us in every sphere. And today's text in particular reminds us that we need to be led and led well within the church. We need to be challenged on our sin. We need to be encouraged in our walk. We need a real committed relationship with a local church that goes beyond a Sunday morning soundbite. If you've not already submitted yourself to the leadership in a local church, can I tell you, you need that. In our context, that looks like membership. You need that. You need to say, I'm here, I want to be led, let's walk together. Leadership matters. He's written it right here into the blueprints of the household of God. So, let's pray. Let's pray for the elders that God would send. Let's pray for the elders whom God has sent. 
And let's pray that by the grace of God, He would change our disposition towards receiving leadership in general. Because it is a gift. It's a gift from God. His Word teaches us that it is. And if it is, then we should receive it and we should do so with gladness. To that end, let me pray for us today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank You, God, that even though there's not one perfect leader in this whole world, we as Your people submit to the perfect shepherd. That Jesus is the shepherd of this church. That means He is the pastor. He is the elder. He is the overseer. He's written into His Word that there are under-shepherds. There are some that are appointed by You, called by Your Spirit, to step into this role, to do their very, very best to try and resemble Christ's leadership. And Lord, we know that we fail. We know that any elder that we ever appoint here will fall short in one way or another. God, we're not naive to that. But Lord, still we pray that you would lay it upon the hearts of those whom you've set apart, that you'd lay it upon their hearts to take up this challenge, to walk faithfully, to lead well, to lead sacrificially your people. Lord, I pray that you would break us from all of the ideas that we have of what leadership should look like, all the qualifications that we want to add to this list that aren't there, all the qualifications on this list that we want to undervalue that we, want to, that we want to erase or, or just neglect when we consider people who would come for the task. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see that your way is right and it's wise and it leads to life. And that churches that have neglected this have done so to their own peril and ruin. God, I thank you for preserving us. Lord, I've referenced the last two years a few times in this sermon. And Lord, I just once again acknowledge that it is just your grace that we're even here. Um, Lord, I'm thankful that you've shepherded us and you've directed us. You've shown grace and mercy when we as an elder team have gotten things wrong, and undoubtedly we have. Um, Lord, you've, you've been compassionate to us, and uh, Lord, you've helped us and, and pulled us out of probably bad decisions that would have led to ruin. Uh, Lord, you correct us. I thank you for your correction. And Lord, we just ask with expectation that you would raise up in this place godly elders not just for this year, not just for next year, but for generations of faithfulness to come, that you would raise up spiritual leaders who would resemble Christ in this church and to the watching community. Spiritual leaders that aren't afraid to have the hard talks, spiritual leaders that are encouragers, uh, spiritual leaders that point with every muscle in their body to Jesus Christ. Spiritual leaders who know your word and who know how to apply the the ointment of the gospel to every ache and pain that your people face. Lord, we ask for that, and we ask for it in faith. And Lord, I pray also that you would just help us. Lord, as I mentioned at the end, I do get the sense that, and Lord, and I'm not a prophet, so I say this with humility, I do get the sense that this is a a live sin um, in our culture. Uh, Lord, that we reject authority and we do it brazenly, And we don't even feel convicted. Lord, we've seared our conscience in this one. And if that's true, Lord, I pray that you would bring repentance. And I pray that we as a people at Redeemer would be a people who are not characterized by a disposition of rebellion, but that we would have a disposition of submission. 
And uh, Lord, that that would be the way that we walk with one another and the way that we walk in our marriages and the way that we walk in the world as we pray for those who govern over us, we pray for our political leaders. Lord, that, that this would be who we are, a people who have a disposition of submission, who deeply trust that God is in control and that you've put leaders over us. Uh, Lord, so I ask for that. I pray that you'd help and direct us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?